Today on Reparations in Action. One of the campaigns of genocide um, against the Indigenous people was what was called the Black Hawk War. And um, the U.S. government defeated the Black Hawk people, the Sauk, the Fox, and other Indigenous peoples or nations. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, The White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. I am the host of the show Reparations in Action, which broadcasts weekly on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, where it is also produced. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a podcast series exposing the insidious lies we learn as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we would like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast weekly. And today, we're taking on the white lie that the white man discovered America and settled the West. Taking this discussion on will be Jesse Neville, the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, and Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Time is almost up, and it's almost up for a social system uh, that has its origin in killing and raping and, and pillage of the planet Earth. And it's again, it is a foundation of colonialism. And so we have the indigenous people who are living in this country now, and we speak of sometime if they happen to be in the room or if it satisfies our uh, uh, interest in, in what we call dealing with the, the global climate crisis. Uh, where if the, uh, that we, we recognize today uh, as, as being existential. Uh, but I say that it was existential when they were 56 million indigenous people killed in the process of building this entire thing. That was a part of the crisis that people are recognizing today because it's coming home. This chicken's coming home to roost. And so the foundation of, the, of this crisis is colonialism. That was Chairman Omalia Shatella of the African People's Socialist Party speaking at a webinar held by the Green Party of St. Louis called Envisioning a Greener New Deal on May 8th, 2021. We now go to Jesse Neville and Penny Hess, who will shatter the lie that the white man discovered America and settled the West. Uhuru, Jesse. Uhuru, Chairwoman Penny. Uhuru, I'm so glad to be back on Reparations in Action, and I'm excited that we can take on this critical and important lie that the white man or the European, the colonizers, discovered the Americas and settled the West. And, you know, we begin by, of course, as always, saluting Chairman Omalia Shatella, Deputy Chair Onizene Shatella, our leadership from the African People's Socialist Party, which formed the African People's Solidarity Committee as part of their strategy to liberate Africa and African people everywhere. And the work of APSC is to go into the white community behind enemy lines and to win solidarity and reparations from other white people. And of course, I always have to say that my ability 
to even sum up these questions that we're talking about and to understand them and articulate them comes from the leadership of Chairman Omali Shatella. And we use the political theory created by the chairman called African internationalism. It's a theory of practice that was created by the chairman and the African People's Socialist Party to analyze the world as it really is and to inspire us to get active to actually change it. Absolutely. And I think it's really important for anyone who's tuning in for the first time to understand that this White Lies Shattered series is biased on the side of the African working class, the oppressed and the colonized. There's two ways to look at any question, the point of view of the oppressor and the point of view of the oppressed. Right. And and we aren't just here to give you some interesting history so you can sit around and talk about it in the cafe as we all have a tendency to want to do. But we want to explain the world as we understand it through the eyes of the African working class who has complete unity and solidarity with the indigenous workers and people um, inside the borders of the United States and throughout this hemisphere, and that we can take these understandings to be part of changing the world and calling for reparations to African people and return of the stolen land to the indigenous people. So today we're going to show that the building of the United States is settler colonialism. It's built on genocide so vicious, beyond description, and the theft of the land of the indigenous people on a foundation of the colonial enslavement of African people that created the wealth that America's ruling class and white population in general experience today, and in fact, created the wealth of capitalism itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in St. Louis, which is the site of the Black Power Blueprint, a project of the African People's Socialist Party and the African People's Education and Defense Fund that is about creating institutions of economic development and political and economic power in the hands of the African working class. And I mean, there is nothing else like it. And I would certainly call on people to go to blackpowerblueprint.org and check it out. It's a very, very amazing project. And it's based here in North St. Louis in the um, very, very colonized and impoverished community of of the North Side, made up of 90% African workers. But here in St. Louis, there's, there's an arch, the famous St. Louis arch that sits right on the Mississippi River. And wow, what does that arch mean? It's a monument to the genocide of the indigenous people. It's, it's a monument to manifest destiny in a city where just about every possible terror was and is inflicted against African people. And just recently, I went to what's called the Cahokia Mounds, Jesse. It's Mm. right across the the river here in Illinois, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place where a thousand years ago was an incredible indigenous civilization, something that most of us never hear about or don't know about, um, where up to 100,000 indigenous people lived. 
There are, you know, and they, they created these mounds. There's one you can walk up and just see an incredibly beautiful, beautiful vista for miles around. And there are, um, there's a museum that shows uh, how the society was created, what were the, the um, you know, the vegetables and the fruit and the plants, the plant life that, that were there and that they cultivated. It's, it's incredible. So, you know, then you can see the arch, actually, when you go up the major mound. And, you know, you can see it in the distance, the gateway arch. And that gateway arch stands for genocide of the indigenous people. Um, that's what it's about. You know, well, what else does that mean? The gateway to the West. Right. You know, that St. Louis was the staging ground for what the U.S. called the war, the Indian Wars, which in fact was a concerted plan of absolute annihilation of the indigenous people and the theft of their land. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, Chairwoman Penny, I've been to St. Louis um, a few times myself um, to you know, work in solidarity with the Black Power Blueprint. And I've always seen that arch. And even before learning this history, it was, it was pretty obvious that there was some horrible history behind it, as is the case with any monument in the United States. Um, but yeah, it's just really clarifying to learn just that it's a monument to genocide. And there's so many in this country. And I think this whole discussion about shattering the lies um, you know, per perpetrated by imperialism through, through everything, through schools, through mm. Hollywood, through children's uh, movies, cartoons, everything, all of the lies that are promoted about the indigenous people is so important, starting with the ultimate lie, which is that this land belongs to white people. And yeah. as the Woody Guthrie song goes, this, this land is our land that they, you know, had us sing in school growing up. And it's, it is not, that's the biggest lie. This is not white people's land. We are, as you just said, we're here as part of settler colonialism, um, you know, as the invaders that, that are residing upon stolen and occupied land of the indigenous people. And it's very similar in so many ways to what's happening in occupied Palestine. Yes. And it's, you know, uh, right now, a lot of the Palestinian, uh, Palestinian liberation struggle is, is raising this question and, and really starting to influence the ability for people around the world uh, to sum up that uh, it's not a conflict. It's not a quote unquote war between mm -hmm. two equal playing fields, between two equal players with their own militaries that are engaged in some kind of feud, that it's a struggle against colonial occupation and it's a struggle for liberation from settler colonialism. And the same is true of the whole history of the indigenous resistance that is sometimes referred to as the quote-unquote Indian Wars. So I just think this is such an important discussion. And um, also the, the whole, I mean, there's an entire holiday uh, devoted mm -hmm. to mythologizing and mystifying and obscuring the reality of the genocide against the indigenous people. And of course, I'm talking about Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about that, Chairwoman Penny? Yeah, I mean, just the fact that this, uh, you know, these pilgrims, these poor, right. suffering white pilgrims who were forced to leave Britain, England, and um, come to this, quote, new world, and um, had to learn how to farm and what to farm, etc. You know, just this whole myth, 
that this Thanksgiving was a happy time because the indigenous people taught them how to farm and shared with them and it was all happy and sharing and everybody got along and it was, you know, and the heroes of the day were the white people. And so, you know, I, I know that the indigenous movement overall has taken on this question of Thanksgiving fiercely over the last, you know, 40 years really. And that there are many places now where they, this is now called, when this and Columbus Day, by the way, and Columbus Day is now called Indigenous Peoples Day in many cities and even states um, throughout the U.S. And this lie of Thanksgiving where, um, you know, that white people are supposed to be so grateful because indigenous people gave us this land is, is hideous. You yeah. know, it's really, really offensive. And that it was that this, this genocide began immediately and that there's so many things that, you know, this whole myth that whenever the colonizer goes in, whether it was in South Africa, whether it's in Israel, well, you know, whether, whenever the white people go in, they, they always say, well, they weren't using it. They weren't using the land right there. And it was empty. And, and that's always a lie, always a lie. And, you know, that, that there were literally millions of indigenous people on this land and certainly in this whole hemisphere. There were hundreds of millions. And that in many cases where white people came to farm was stealing the farmlands and the hunting grounds of the indigenous people and wiping them out. Uh, just plopping right down, right in the middle of that, as the colonizers do. And, um, you know, just creating hideous forms of torture, murder, um, you know, mutilation, all of the things that white people did to the indigenous people in the process of stealing their land. Um, and the lie of Thanksgiving must go mm -hmm. because yes. this land is stolen and stolen in dripping in blood of the indigenous people, even up into today. Definitely, hundred um, percent. Yeah, this this lie has to be utterly exposed. And I'm wondering if we could talk about uh, some of the examples of the, um, you know, the so-called Indian Wars, the the wars of occupation and genocide, um, such as what's referred to as the French and Indian War. Uh, Chairwoman Penny. Yes. Um, well, I think that uh, one of the things that is important was, of course, the French and Indian War was before the U.S. so-called revolution hmm. against the American Revolution against um, England. And it was where the European powers were still grappling for, um, for some of this land and, and the resources. At that time, it would be one of the things that the indigenous writer Ward Churchill points out in his book called A Little Matter of Genocide, which has a lot of tremendous, really powerful and informative documentation and history in it, is this um, example of Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who did fight in the French and Indian War on the side of the British, and that he famously use smallpox-infested blankets against the indigenous people as a means of wiping them out, fully conscious 
that this was one of the first instances of germ warfare, um, thus making England the chief colonizer in the world at the end of this war. And, you know, Amherst University, there's Amherst, the town in Massachusetts. I mean, you know, he's still there. He's still honored as a great hero, military hero of the new world. And, you know, just to read a little bit about what he did, according to Ward Churchill, he writes that Amherst wrote in a postscript of a letter to Bouquet that smallpox be sent among the disaffected tribes, quote unquote. Bouquet, who was a, another colonel, replied also in a postscript, I will try to contaminate them with some blankets that may fall into their hands and take care not to get the disease myself. And to Bouquet's postscript, Amherst replied, you will do well to infect the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. On June 24th, Captain Ekire, one of the Royal Americans, noted in his journal, we gave them two blankets and a handkerchief out of the smallpox hospital. I hope it will have the desired effect. And indeed, it wiped out who knows how many millions um, of indigenous people who had no immunity to that, to smallpox. And, and it was, you know, really, really conscious and, and part of the strategy for genocide. Right. Yeah, I think that that's that's an important point because even when some white bourgeois historians acknowledge the uh, the effect of germs and disease on the indigenous population after the Europeans invaded, sometimes it's talked about as if it was almost like incidental or accidental. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. oh well, they didn't have the immunity, and, and it just sort of like this was part of it, and it's used sometimes to even take away from the genocide. genocide. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, which on, on the one hand, it's true that as, as you wrote in Overturning the Culture of Violence, um, to be breathed upon by a white person could be deadly, uh, mm-hmm. c- considering how, how diseased and germ-ridden Europe was. But on the other hand, it was, it was deliberate. It was, this, was chemi- this was germ warfare carried out by, by white people uh, as part of the, the extirpation, other words that they use, the, the genocide against the indigenous people. Yes. And so, yeah, this is just one example of the kinds of things that, um, that the colonizers have done to the indigenous people. And everything that has happened, you know, that, that happened that white people in Europe did to Jews in Europe, um, they got the ideas from reading about what white people did to indigenous people on these lands. So, you know, I also want to talk about some of the resistance of the indigenous people. We don't, we don't hear a lot about that. We aren't taught that in schools, although I've read that West Point and some military um, universities and schools of the U.S. government do study some of the brilliant battle plans of indigenous leaders. But um, we don't hear a lot about it. It's not something that we are taught, at least when I went to school. I don't know if that is happening more today, Jesse. You could, you <laughs> no, could- cer- certainly not. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, well, one one of the the people that was brilliant, that was amazing, was known as Tecumseh, and he was born in 1768. He died in 1813 when he was only 45 years old. He was so you know he was born before the U.S. again before the so-called American Revolution, and. He was chosen or understood by his family and his people that he was, even as a small child, a great leader. And he was cultivated and treated by his family and trained in a way to be a resistance leader of the indigenous people. And it's very interesting because the, um, the childhood of Chairman Omalia Shatella growing up in the African community of St. Petersburg, Florida, also had a similarity in that his grandmother and his aunt understood that he was, he was a genius. He, he was a great leader and trained him and cultivated the chairman as well to, to use his considerable talents to lead his oppressed and colonized African people to freedom and liberation, which is something that he has done his entire life. So this was very similar with Tecumseh, his, his mother, his family, um, his relatives just always put him forward and worked with him to, you know, to lead the people. And, and he became, he grew up to become a brilliant orator, also like Chairman O'Malley Shatella, he was so um, impressive as a speaker that even um, colonizer ruling class figures like William Sherman, the U.S. Civil War general, um, were named after him, took, took his name, or their parents named him. William Sherman's middle name is Tecumseh, William Tecumseh Sherman. And it was because this incredible leader, Tecumseh, the indigenous leader, was, was so powerful and brilliant. And already by the 1780s, he could see that the indigenous peoples in various settings throughout the East Coast and, and the Midwest in particular had been brutally decimated, that their lands had been taken, their culture consciously destroyed, that um, their, their reason for living had been taken away and that, you know, certainly out west, the buffalo and the bison were consciously killed, and we will talk about that a little bit later, but were consciously being wiped out as understanding that that's the habitat and the necessary um, food product and so much more than that for the indigenous people to live. And, and on the east coast, also, you know, the lands were taken, the ways that the people fed and clothed themselves, um, you know, which as the chairman always says, the, the key um, motivation for any society is the production and reproduction of real life. And that had been viciously taken away from the indigenous people and consciously destroyed. So Tecumseh seeing that called for a confederation of the indigenous people and, um, and, and built that, you know, built that, that all of the remaining 
indigenous people in on the East Coast and Midwest to come together as one people, which again, you know, is the vision of Chairman O'Malley Shatella that all African people are one people and should be and will be and are being united around the world to liberate Africa as their homeland. So, you know, it's just a it was a really, really profound time and the work that he that that Tecumseh did was was truly amazing. Um, and he fought in the War of 1812. He was killed in that war. Um, and according to stories that I've read, he was betrayed by his brother. I don't know if that's true, but that is um, what is generally put out in, in stories or, you know, in the history about him. Um, but I grew up in Indiana, in the state of Indiana, and Tecumseh was based in northern Indiana. And as a child, I never knew about that. I never knew about Tecumseh. I never knew what he was trying to do. And, of course, when he um, aligned with the British in the War of 1812, and the British promised him a huge amount of land, which, of course, they did not do because they always lied. And uh, that was, an, you know, just... Um, a really critical part of the story. But Tecumseh was an amazing, powerful, visionary um, indigenous leader who was, was murdered, was assassinated, and was so very, very young, but left an indelible imprint on the history, the true history of the resistance of indigenous people. So uh, Chairwoman Penny, so what, what's the deal with William Tecumseh Sherman? Why does he bear that name? Well, been? I was always curious about that because Sherman, who Sherman is, is that he was, first of all, the Civil War general who um, many uh, white people still hate today because he's the one that burned the um, Georgia from, from, I think it was, was it from Savannah to the sea? Um, and he, he just burned, um, plantations and, and the property of the former white ruling class of the South at the end of the civil war. So he is very much hated by white people, by white people in the South, but he was certainly, you know, uh, um, a general of the union of the North. And, um, he, I always wondered why he had Tecumseh as the middle name, but the reason why was that his his father, Tecumseh, uh, Sherman's father, found who was a peer, you know, in the same period as uh, when Tecumseh was alive, and heard him speak and was just so impressed by him that he named he gave his son the middle name Tecumseh, and. I would also mention that William Tecumseh Sherman is the one who carried out Abraham Lincoln's plan for the what's called the 40 acres and a mule, and, a mule, and who announced on the um, January 1st of 1860 at the end of the uh, what's known as the Civil War that there would be um, something like 250,000 acres and most of it being former plantations owned by uh, white 
owners of African people and, you know, slave owners, that this would be turned back over to African people in parcels of land. And this was something like 30 miles from the ocean to inland from, um, from South Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. And that's a huge amount of land that would today be worth trillions of dollars. And that was a form of reparations. And, and apparently Sherman had actually met with African leaders at the end of the Civil War and asked them, well, what do you want? And they all said, we want land, we want our own land. And we feel that it should be the land we work, that we were for forced to work. And so he did agree with that, although I'm not saying that, he, that Sherman in any way had sympathy with African people, but he, he um, you know, felt that there had to be a, uh, a little payoff going on. You know, but he, in any case, did do that. But after, and then, you know, the, the story is that African people immediately, I mean, that day, New Year's Day, 1860, they took off, they packed up, they went to that land and they started working it. But by September of that same year, right after um, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and the next president, Andrew Johnson, was, um, you know, very much a, a Southern sympathizer and was um, overturned, overturned this, this land. It was called Field Order 15. He overturned that. They took the land away from African people and gave it back to white people. So, you know, just all the way around, you know, U.S. lies, they give with one hand, they steal with another. They do everything that they can to betray treaties and any kind of promises. They, there has never been any responsibility to carry out anything that the U.S. government has ever promised to indigenous or African people because of colonialism. And that's what colonialism is. As the chairman said, colonialism is violence. Colonialism is the domination of a whole people by a foreign and alien state power and colonizer nation for the benefit of the whole colonizer people population. Right. And that's, that's the mode of production as the chairman says. And yeah, I mean, and I read something about field order 15 that after, after they rescinded it under Johnson and all the white people took back control of that land that the Africans who had gone there, ended up being a lot of them ended up being forced into becoming sharecroppers. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So that was sort of like the, the dawn of sharecropping as like a major, uh, you know, form of, of labor exploitation of African people came out of that um, reversal of something that was, you know, an, an attempt at, at reparations to African people. So, um, yeah, and, and I also wanted to know if we could if we could look at more at this question of genocide because um, you know you talked about Amherst and there's yeah. so many others there's so many others that these are like the the celebrated uh, white people in you know in U.S. history who who made their careers through the slaughter and and terror against indigenous and African people and uh, in in the book Overturn the Culture of Violence. Uh, you have a quote that says, 
genocide is as American as apple pie and as popular. And I always thought that was such a great statement because um, as Chairman, Chairman Amalia Shetela has really been summing up, you know, always, but especially lately, that this whole issue of fascism, um, saying that this, you know, the struggle is against fascism or making some kind of hysteria around the notion of fascism obscures the fact that the, the violence and terror against African, indigenous and, and colonized people takes place every single day under colonialism, whether it is a so-called fascist colonial government or more often a democracy, a colony, a democratic colonialism. And that, you know, fascism is that moment when, uh, you know, when white people, a sector of the white population begins to experience like a small uh, measure of what colonized people face under colonialism every single day for hundreds of years, whether it's under so-called democracy or under, under so-called fascism. Um, and you've really shown in, in overturning the culture of violence, you know, based on that, that for the most part, it was democratic. It was, a, it was white, white democracy. American democracy was, uh, was the form of, of, uh, the structure through which the genocide against the indigenous people was carried out. And, all of the yes. um, big heroes of American democracy were champions of the genocide against the indigenous people. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't, of course, we're going to talk about Andrew Jackson, but Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, every, yep. every president, you know, every president of the U.S., all the leaders were united with the total um, annihilation of the indigenous people. And the, the right and, and, you know, not just this right, but this sort of destiny, which is it, it has, you know, sort of implied in that, like God given the destiny right. God gave us, just like, you know, it's said about Israel, that white people had the, the right to take that over, um, to colonize the Palestinian people. That manifest destiny was something that they had to carry out. It's what was thrust upon them. And that every, every, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, he was totally about the genocide of the indigenous people and carried that out and built the national parks um, out west by removing the indigenous people. But yes, it, it was democracy for white people. And that, as you know, as you said, that and the chairman, Chairman O'Malley Chattel, has spoken so much about it and written about it, that the whole question of fascism is when what happens uh, a little bit of the manifestations of colonialism are become present in the society of the colonizer. That is what is called fascism. But when all of the time that that is being carried out against the, in, the indigenous or the colonized population White people accept it, don't see it, don't care, and carry it out, um, you know, either overtly or, or generally speaking, very enthusiastically and participate in that. And, you know, I think that the this whole question of um, what they call Indian removal, which was Andrew Jackson's uh, platform, I would, I just, first of all, let me read a little bit from Overturning the Culture of Violence of some of the atrocities that Andrew Jackson carried out. 
And then I want to read a little bit of his speech to Congress passing the Indian Removal Act, which was one of the key um, factors in the uh, Trail of Tears and, you know, the removal, the total removal, forced removal and forced marches and, and, and genocidal forced marches of the indigenous people on the East Coast. But um, it's, so some of the things that are recorded about, about Andrew Jackson is that he was called by the indigenous people, he was called Sharp Knife, and he was probably called that, he probably boasted of that. But Jackson oversaw and personally inflicted countless atrocities against the indigenous people himself and in 1814, the future President Jackson, quote, supervised the mutilation of more than 800 or more Creek Indian corpses, the bodies of men, women, and children that they had massacred, cutting off their noses to count and, and preserve a record of the dead, slicing long strips of flesh from their bodies to tan and turn into bridal reins. You know, Jesse, I heard testimony on the radio um, when it was the 100, the 150th centennial, it's called the 150 years mm -hmm. of the gold rush, from the gold rush, and I think that would have been about 19, 1848 to, what, 1993. I was living in Oakland, California, um, under the leadership of, um, the Uhuru movement, organizing there um, under the leadership of the party on the streets of Oakland, organizing white people for reparations and to stand in solidarity with, um, you know, the liberation of African people. And I remember hearing on the radio, I think it was NPR, broadcast some of the testimonies of some kind of tribunal that was held in that year um, in, in the sesquicentennial um, events or whatever, where people, white people, and, and of course, indigenous people who were, um, you know, whose, whose ancestors or even parents or, or grandparents had gone through this and what were some of the things that, that they could remember and say. And I will never forget hearing a woman testify that a white woman, of course, testified that her grandfather had a coat made out of the skin and hair of indigenous people in California. Um, so, you know, we, yeah, we'll talk about that more later on because the state of California paid white people a million dollars a year during the years of the gold rush to bring in the scalps of the indigenous people. And of course they used all that money and white people made fortunes doing that. Uh, so, you know, they always blamed scalping on indigenous people. White people were the ones that did that. So, you know, I just wanted to read uh, just a, a little bit from this uh, speech by Andrew Jackson to Congress. And I believe this was, in, I'm um, not sure totally of the year. This doesn't say the year, but it was, oh yeah, it was December 6, 1830. So he said, it gives me great pleasure to announce to Congress 
that the benevolent policy of the government steadily pursued for nearly 30 years in relation to the removal of the Indians beyond the white settlements is approaching to a happy consummation. Two important tribes have accepted the provision made for their removal at the last session of Congress, and it is believed that their example will induce the remaining tribes to also seek the same obvious advantage. And, you know, again, um, it was the neocolonial leadership of some of these so-called tribes that made the deals with the U.S. government at the expense of the masses of indigenous people. So, you know, um, Jackson goes on, and you, you see how he makes this, oh, this is friendly, this is benevolent, this is so happy. The indigenous people unite with it. You know, they, this is exactly how you could read what Netanyahu or the, or the state of Israel says about the Palestinian people. And they set up neocolonialists and pay them off. And um, they work together with, you know, to carry out the policies of imperialism and, uh, and colonialism against their own people. But a little bit more of what Jackson said, he said the consequences of a speedy removal will be important to the United States, to individual states, and to the Indians themselves. This pecuniary advantages, which it promises to the government, are at the least of its recommendations. So he's saying, oh, it's not because of the money. It's not because, uh, you know, we're going to get rich doing this. He's saying it puts an end to all possible danger of collusion between the authorities of the general and state governments on account of the Indians. It will place a dense and civilized population in large tracts of, of country now occupied by a few savage hunters. By opening the whole territory between Tennessee on the north and Louisiana on the south through the settlement of whites, it will incalculably strengthen the southwestern frontier and render the adjacent states strong enough to repel future invasions without remote aid. It, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And this is so wonderful. Um, we should be happy about this. And everybody's, this is beneficial to everyone. This is, you know, the typical colonizer, the lie, the viciousness. And of course, we say we, we, it continues to be what the colonizer carries out in um, relationship to the colonized and in the process of committing genocide against them. Wow. It's, yeah, absolutely clear um, that just this whole history of the genocide against the indigenous people and the democratic participation of the white population and the, the track record of all of these so-called heroes that are propped up in this in, in white history that were the leaders of all of this genocide against the indigenous people. And, um, you know, you started off this program, Chairwoman Penny, talking about the, uh, the arch in St. Louis, the Gateway Arch. And, um, you know, we've, we've been seeing books coming out in the last couple of years mm -hmm. that start to really dive into the history of the central role played by the city of St. Louis and Missouri in the genocide against the indigenous people and in the consolidation of colonial capitalism here in the stolen 
occupied indigenous land now known as the United States as a whole. And um, that's just really interesting and powerful to consider, especially when you look at the fact that this current um, era of, of renewed African resistance that we are living in today was kicked off by the Ferguson St. Louis uprisings. And St. Louis in so many ways represents the front lines of the work of the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement. So, at, you know, talk about that, Chairwoman Penny. You're there. You've been there for a few years now. Um, let's talk about the significance of St. Louis, both historically and presently, uh, as it relates to this whole question of the genocide of the native people and uh, the ongoing struggle and resistance. Yes, I think this is this is really really deep um, living here, and I know that uh, there's a book called The Broken Heart of America that gives some of this history. But even before that book came out. To Charwa Masimba, who is a member of the African People's Socialist Party and a, the economic development director of the Black Power Blueprint here, has always given PowerPoints and presentations that showed that, that uh, St. Louis from the very beginning was the staging ground of the U.S. so-called wars Indian wars, with the wars of genocide, the, the staging ground of the genocide all over the U.S. And, and from here, this is where uh, they rode out on their horses and went out to California and up north to, to Minnesota, up the Missouri River, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and even in the south. This is where the genocide was coordinated out of and where over the centuries, the most vicious policies against African people have been carried out. And that's something that we can spend one of these, these sessions of this series on, just telling the story of St. Louis alone as sort of the, the belly button of the U.S., of this, uh, of this here, like right smack in the middle of it, and how it has been the coordination of so many of the, the U.S.'s most vicious, most terrifying um, policies of colonialism, which is not a policy, which is the essence of the U.S. state and um, U.S. imperialism and capitalism itself. But here in St. Louis, um, the military fortress, so to speak, for um, the launching of the uh, genocidal wars, the wars against the indigenous people, was, was um, coordinated out of something that's a little bit slightly south of St. Louis City. It's in the county, and it's called Jefferson Barracks. And it's, um, it was a, you know, it was barracks. It was where almost every general of the Civil War came. I mean, white people used the indigenous, the wars against the indigenous people as a stepping stone to political office, to the higher ranks of the U.S. military. Um, they, that's how they saw that they got experience. And that's always been the case because uh, Winston Churchill had called the British wars against colonized African people, I believe, and especially in Sudan and Rhodesia and, and Southern Africa, um, splendid little wars, he said. They were splendid little wars that were just basically wars of annihilation, of a well-armed um, 
prepared colonial military against a people who were resisting and fighting for their land and their culture and their freedom and independence and were not prepared and not able to go up against what um, the weapons of mass destruction of the colonial forces. So this Jefferson Barracks, it's interesting that right now the city or whatever entity it is is spending literally millions of dollars to rebuild some of this. It's a park. I haven't been there. I do want to see it. I do want to see it. But it's, um, yeah, it's a park. They're rebuilding some of this so it can look more like it used to look like uh, back in the day when they were carrying out this. And one of the wars, one of the campaigns of genocide um, against the indigenous people was what was called the Black Hawk War. And um, the U.S. government defeated the Black Hawk people, the Sauk, the Fox, and other indigenous peoples or nations. And, um, and in 1832, this opened up millions of acres of land to white people, basically was given to them. Um, and Black Hawk was taken captive and imprisoned in Jefferson Barracks, um, which I want to read more about. He was, you know, it's it's so, so vicious. And so this is from the Missouri website on the Jefferson Barracks today. It's saying that troops from Jefferson Barracks also took part in the Black Hawk War of 1831 and 1832, which led to the realization that the Western frontier was an enormous territory and the army at the time was unsuited in patrolling it. This action is directly responsible for the formation of the United States Regiment of Dragoons at Jefferson Barracks in 1833. The Dragoons were an armed regiment of mounted cavalry troops who were highly mobile and could travel far distances in short periods of time. This mounted cavalry unit actually became the very first permanent cavalry of the United States Army. So the Jefferson Barracks First Dragoons, which were eventually redesignated the First Cavalry in 1861, participated in virtually every, quote, conflict in America. Conflict. Again, you know, we come this this thing that's being raised by the Palestinian people. It's not a conflict by two equal armies. This is wars of destruction and, and genocide. So they're saying that that this these dragoons were in every conflict in America, such as the Seminole War. The war the Seminole War is, is the war that led by Andrew Jackson sending US troops to the south, to Florida, actually, where Indigenous people and African people who had escaped the enslavement of chattel slavery a little bit further north uh, banded together and were called the Seminole people. And actually, um, many, and, and they're also called Maroons. They're Africans who escaped and won in the sense that they were not recaptured and they worked together in fierce fighters of the Seminole people. And eventually the Seminoles were, uh, went out West and eventually to Mexico. And many of the people of uh, Africans or indigenous slash African people live 
among what's called the seminal in Mexico today and are very aware, they're called, they call themselves Maroons. And Maroons means Africans who fought and, and actually escaped and created some kind of land base either in the mountains of, of Jamaica or, um, you know, some place in, in the hills or swamps of, of the U.S. and lived for a, a, you know, given amount of time in that way. So the dragoons were created to, um, to fight them and to, to track them down and kill them. Also, the dragoons were in the Mexican War. What do you mean the Mexican War? The war, the, the action, the military campaign that stole half of Mexico from the people of Mexico. And that includes Texas, Arizona, Colorado, California, New Mexico, and many more states. Um, Nevada. This was Mexico, and that was in the 1840s, at the same time that the U.S. discovered, quote-unquote, gold in California, which at that time was still a territory owned by Mexico. Immediately, as soon as they find gold, U.S. declares war and sends these dragoons to go in and to murder the people of Mexico, steal their land, and force them into a bogus treaty called the Treaty of, of Guadalupe. So also, let me just see where else, this that the Dragoons were in the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, which was a war against the people of the Philippines in particular and, and other places um, under Theodore Roosevelt. And it says, and much of the Indian expeditions involving the Cherokee, Iowa, Kansas, Mahas, Pawnee, Potawatomi, Osage, Oto, Sac, and Sioux indigenous people. So, you know, this is what is proudly on the Missouri website about the Jefferson Barracks. This has been really, really powerful history that we've been discussing, uh, Chairwoman Penny, on this episode of White Lies Shattered. And we're just at about time, but we definitely want to continue discussing this subject um, on our next podcast. Next yes. Week. Yes, absolutely. Because this question, just as with so much information about um, the colonial enslavement of African people that is, is being revealed in books, um, there's so much more being revealed about the in, just the vicious, the unspeakable uh, torture in the carrying out of genocide as a popular policy by white people in the United States, uh, a policy that's been upheld in from everything from cowboy movies to schools and churches and Girl Scouts and all of it. Um, so yes, there's so much more that we have to talk about. It's the resistance of African indigenous people. It's the profound understanding of the meaning of colonialism what it really means that colonialism and violence go together, colonialism and genocide go together, and the leadership of the African Revolution, African internationalism, and Chairman Omalia Shatella. Jesse Neville and Penny Hess, thank you so much for being on Reparations in Action, White Lies Shattered series to officially shatter the lie that the white man discovered America and settled the West.
Thank you to everyone who tuned in today, and please join us next time on Reparations in Action, White Lies Shattered. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>